Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist, whose main offices are located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Nacochonk, Anacostia, and Piscataway peoples. The Anacostia and Potomac Rivers have long been places of trade and gathering for indigenous peoples, and Washington, D.C. is now home to diverse indigenous people from across Turtle Island. American Anthropologist has published material throughout its history that has taken knowledge from indigenous peoples for a scholarly audience and has not required its authors or editors to be good relations to indigenous peoples and communities. Acknowledging territory is only one step in repairing these relationships. The editorial collective of the journal is committed to deep listening and engagement with indigenous scholars, peoples, and communities to explore ways to be a better relation. joining us for another episode of Anthropological Airwaves, the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is Season 4, Episode 3, Archaeological Identities, Part 1. My name is Anar Parikh. Many of y'all might be familiar with my voice by now, but in case we haven't had the chance to be acquainted yet, I'm the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist, and the executive producer of Anthropological Airwaves. I'm super excited to tell you about today's episode and what we have in store for Anthropological Airwaves listeners this summer. The next several episodes feature work by participants in American Anthropologists' Contributing Editor Program. This program is an editorial opportunity for graduate students in anthropology and related fields to work closely with the journal's managing editor and with members of the editorial board to develop skills and build networks for their future careers inside and outside of academia. Over the course of a two-year term, contributing editors gain insight into the various facets of academic publishing and work on their own projects that speak to their thematic and geographic interests. Eleanor Neal, the contributing editor at Anthropological Airwaves, will tell you more about this episode in just a moment. But first, let me introduce her and the project she's been working on during her editorship at American Anthropologist. Eleanor is a PhD candidate in the Classics Department at Trinity College Dublin, where she is examining the role of community engagement in Cypriot archaeology. In conversation with her broader interests on how archaeology forms and informs contemporary social and political dialogues, Eleanor has spent the past year developing a three-episode series titled Archaeological Identities. From the African-American burial ground in New York City, to the memorialization of violence in Northern Ireland, to professional archaeology in the Eastern Mediterranean, In each episode, Eleanor asks archaeologists with different regional and methodological specialties to choose a single object or site, and in their own words, describe how this site or artifact speaks to the interaction between archaeology and political or social identity across time and place. With each episode, Eleanor has also curated a list of additional readings for listeners who are interested in learning more. We'll link to these readings in the show notes and include them on the episode transcript, which, as always, you can find on the Anthropological Airwaves page of the American Anthropologist website. And with that, I'll turn it over to her.
Welcome to Archaeological Identities. My name is Eleanor Neal. I'm a contributing editor at American Anthropologist and Anthro Airwaves. In many ways, archaeology is as much about the time in which it is being undertaken as it is about the past which it is exploring. In this three-part podcast, archaeologists will be discussing the ways in which contemporary social and political discourse influence our understanding of archaeological phenomena, as well as the influence of the archaeological past on these contemporary discourses. Intrinsic to these discussions is the role archaeology plays in the creation, recreation, affirmation, and solidification of personal and cultural identity. In this first episode, Dr. Cheryl LaRoche will discuss the African-American burial ground in New York City. The burial ground became a public and political flashpoint in 1991, when hundreds of burials were uncovered during the construction of an office building for the U.S. federal government. Dr. LaRoche worked on this site and spoke about her personal experiences and the lasting impact of the burial ground on New Yorkers, on Americans, and on national discussions of race. So I'm uh, Dr. Cheryl LaRoche, or Jennifer LaRoche. Uh, right now, I am an associate professor in uh, historic preservation at the University of Maryland at College Park. But I'm also a consultant. And so I do a broad range of consulting across numerous sites, museums, cultural institutions, historic sites. And I've been working for the last six years or so uh, for the National Park Service. And then I also spent a very intense amount of time helping the National Museum of African American History before it opened as their project historian for the Cultural Expressions exhibition on the top floor. So I I cover a very broad spectrum of work. And so people will say to me, wait, wait, I thought you were an archaeologist. And I'll say yes. And then the next minute I'm a material culture specialist and I'll say yes. And so uh, next minute I'm a, you know, landscape Specialists. And so all of these things I use to inform my understanding of the African American experience in America mostly. I want to say, oh, 25 years ago, I was the conservator on the African Burial Ground Project in New York City. And that project, while I was the conservator, I was also observing. The underpinnings of what I learned at the African burial ground has served me for the rest of my professional life. The landscape itself, when we realized that these folks were buried in a ravine and had, we had not used a topographic map to understand the lay of the land. I've written a book called Free Black Communities in the Underground Railroad, The Geography of Resistance. Many of the precepts in the geography of resistance that I lay out in that book is something that I learned on the African burial ground how to use a topographic map, always have topography in mind. Understand that um, when I'm looking for African-Americans in the landscape that I'm tending to look at places that are marginalized, they're always living in, quote unquote, the bottom or on a hill. There's always a word in the name of where we live that indicates what's wrong with the land. I learned all of that from the landscape of the African burial ground. 
for multiple reasons. The lessons learned have served me well across my career. Thirty years ago, the African burial ground was discovered when the General Services Administration for the United States government was breaking ground to build their skyscraper in Lower Manhattan. And it generated a lot of controversy because the theory had been that the deep basements of the buildings that were standing on a lot would have destroyed any evidence. And that is not the case. And they encountered graves. And the theory had been, well, they're going to be 50 graves. That's, this is what they had thought because the map indicated that there were two alleys that had never been disturbed. And so that these burials were going to occur under these two alleyways. And New Yorkers had their mind sort of wrapped around 50 burials. But then it was 60, and then it was 70, and then it was 80, and then it was 90, and then it was hundreds. And these hundreds of burials survived under the ground because they had been buried in a ravine. And the, the ravine had been filled, and then the building was built on top of the hill. So the discovery, quote unquote, the aha moment was A, a shock that there had been slavery in New York. B, people were unaccustomed in New York City and Manhattan in the early 90s to be talking about slavery. This is not South Carolina or Alabama. This is New York City. That was a revelation. And the people in New York were so horrified by the treatment that the cemetery was about to receive that these human remains were about to be bulldozed into the sea was kind of the way New York wanted to handle it. All of those things converged to bring together one of the most powerful archaeological probably experiences of the 20th century. And I was privileged to have been witness to all of that. And it, it changed my life. It shaped my career. It was deeply powerful and spiritual experience. So that's the backdrop. And I can remember some of the more famous New York historians being rather cavalier. Oh, we always knew there was a cemetery there. Well, you know, it's on some historic maps. But what I have discovered over time is that what you know and what you do with what you know are two different things. And while these historians may have known that that cemetery was there, there was very little uh, discussion about it. If you look in the index of any book written after about 1992, the African burial ground is always mentioned in New York history. If you look in the index before that date, it's almost never discussed. So it was a deep revelation for New Yorkers, and it was a moment of reckoning around slavery for New York and slavery in the North. The memorial that's there now is a touchstone. Almost every site that I work on, that's historic, archaeological, it doesn't really matter the origins of the site. There's usually a deep cultural component. And I think when it's African-American history, we don't separate. The name of our museum is African-American history and culture. And those two things are going hand in hand at all times. And so as a cultural touchstone, the monument, the exterior interpretation, the demarcation of the place and the space is very important. When they were reburying the human remains, they were put in coffins that were hand-carved and sent from Ghana and put in the ground. Another cultural connection. And then you go in t inside into the building 
which is a, it's still a federal building. Now. It's not a museum. It's a federal space. There is an interpretive center there um, because of the importance of what happened on that space. And because it's still functioning as a burial ground, there's still probably um, a few hundred graves back in the ground. These coffins were reinterred on the site. And so it's still a functioning cemetery in that way. And so I think that the the meaning of it, it always comes back as a place of commemoration. It's a central gathering place for people. And when I'm in Manhattan, I still go by it. I still pay homage. You know, from a spiritual perspective, I gained a relationship with the ancestors, which were a topic of conversation very much and a a thematic cornerstone of the burial ground. All of those things coalesce to make this one of the major sites ever. You know, mine an anecdotal story. I had developed a lecture during that time mapping the burial grounds over the ages because it went through different iterations and then the collect pond was in, it's building the pond and then they closed it up. And But you can always tell where it is because there's a triangular wedge of land in front of City Hall that's never been touched from the earliest days of Dutch occupancy. And so I always bring you down to the triangle and move you north and people can always find the burial ground after I've given that lecture. But I went in, I was giving it for um, the New York Historical Society, and someone said to me, now remember, I'm a conservator and I'm working through all of this stuff in real time. Someone says to me, oh, the head of the map division of the New York Historical Society is here for your talk. And every date, every date that I had for every map sprouted wings. I watched it and flew out of my head. (laughs) The burial ground broke open many different um, modern aspects of archaeology that we see today. In the past, you always conducted archaeology behind a screen. Nobody saw you. It was closed off. It, It looked like any other construction site in Manhattan. It was such a public clamor that they had to open it up, give tours, people you had to let people in. And usually they you know, cite a number of dangers because archaeological sites can be quite dangerous. So all these reasons you didn't have steel toe boots, whatever it was. And that had to change in order for the audience that was clamoring to understand it. But the polarizing and political aspects of that site were such that there were a lot of competing interests. There was the city of New York who wanted, and then the federal government who wanted to get this thing done. You know, construction timelines come with fees and penalties when you do not meet that. And so any disruption is uh, a cause for politicians to be concerned, cause for the money people to be concerned. And the New York public, the Brooklyn, Brooklynites in particular, were absolutely steadfast in their dedication to the project because Again, it was such a shock to the system. It made headline news. It made the front page. People were demonstrating and marching. The controversy did not go away. 
And there was also controversy over what to do with the remains. Do we extract the DNA? Do we get ancient DNA? Do we study these things scientifically? Do we let them rest and not bother them at all? Do we take them out of the city of New York? Is New York going to lose its own cultural patrimony to let it go to Howard and be studied there? So there were all these components. But, you know, politics and race, in specifically because this was the unspoken and yet very overt occurrence that was happening, is with us this very moment. You know, we're listening to it not over archaeology, but over education. And so one of the things that the burial ground did was to bring the feel of archaeology to the awareness and consciousness of Black America. Before then, you know, people were digging up Greece or Rome or London, wherever, but not New York City and not around Black history. So it gave the ordinary citizen and African-Americans, because it was a coalition of Black and white, it gave them a mandate to save this site because the site meant so much on so many different levels, whether it was political or whether it was historical or whether it was archaeological or cultural or the material culture, because I worked on all the artifacts. People would come in to the lab and bless my hands because my hands had touched the artifact and the artifact had touched the ancestors. It was a profound experience. It's interesting because I haven't come back to talk about it like this. I move forward. I'm always working. I'm, you know, I got the next project. But to come back and revisit this in this way is, is an interesting thing to, to engage with. Um, we were so busy battling to save the site that these larger questions uh, were there but could not be engaged with in the same amount of intensity because we were trying to save the site. There's now new legislation coming to the fore. One of the huge problems is that the burials for the enslaved African Americans are unmarked. They're, you know, down in Louisiana, they're on some very expensive and rich land and people know where these cemeteries are. So this whole aspect of Black history is being washed away. There's a fight in my hometown of Bethesda, Maryland over a cemetery. So that the cemetery as a bounded space of cultural, religious, and political expression, because the reason why people are in those spaces is because of policies in the landscape. It's because of slavery. It's because of all of these reasons that the cemetery has not been interpreted on the multi-layers that it should and could be, but largely they're being destroyed. Places where cemeteries usually are in the landscape are on undesirable land as well. And so that's why you're always climbing the hill up to these historic cemeteries. You're going down a hill because the land was farmable or buildable. You aren't going to put a cemetery there. Now this land ends up being, you know, a precipice for a beautiful view, or it ends up being desirable for other reasons where it was undesirable in the past. It's now highly desirable in the present. So the politics around cemeteries, their usage, their interpretation is something that, that we could we could delve into much more deeply and talk about the various 
aspects of understanding that could be derived from a multidisciplinary approach to understanding these spaces. And, you know, when it goes back to mapping, one of the things for the cemeteries of the enslaved, they're often not marked. The burial ground was marked, and the British, God bless them, they marked everything. The African burial ground is clearly marked on the maps from the British as well. But we are hampered by this lack of policy, this lack of consistency. And many of the cemeteries in question are on private land. When I was at the Hampton Plantation, the cemetery is associated, the the vault cemetery for the family is found. We think the highway, 695, is running over what would have been the cemetery for African-Americans. And that's the other thing. Oh, this is useless land. We don't care that there's a slave cemetery on it. We'll just put a highway through it, which is, you know, I have joked often that I'm going to take people around on a highway tour because so much of African-American history is underneath 95. And many of my colleagues, you know, uh, work in highway department, DOT. They're, they know they're going to encounter sensitive material that, that you know, that's, you know, they really want to dig up and get out and keep going. I, I once did a lecture for HUD, the Housing and Urban Development. I thought this woman was probably going to lose her job because I leaned out from the podium and said, do you guys get in the back room, map out every African-American resource and then decide to put a highway through it? And there was this like gas. I thought, oh, her job is done. But I said it in that manner, but it is true. When you look at the level of destruction that has taken place from highways, from urban renewal, from redevelopment, I, I just finished a long study on reconstruction and all of these very early Black communities that started right around the Civil War were wiped out for one reason or another so that it's very hard from a landscape and a mapping perspective in particular to give a thorough history of African Americans in the land. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. I'm just going to keep my remarks to African-Americans. So I think the need for archaeology is really there in part because we have not paid attention to the built environment for African-Americans. We have not curated spaces that should have been curated. We have allowed things to crumble, whether those are slave quarters or communities. And so that archaeology is the last gas of reclamation. And so no matter what I may think about it as a discipline or as a practice, I will confine my remarks to using it as a tool of discovery to enhance Black history. Look, I'm a Black woman in America. I have to suspend a lot of stuff. So I might have to suspend my understanding of the colonialist nature of some of the work that I do because I am achieving something else. And, you know, I am going to have to use the master's tools to get at that. But having said that, one of the things that I see, archaeology is expensive. You need trained field workers to understand what they're doing. You need expensive equipment oftentimes. These are things that are not available. And so even when there is a clamor for archaeology and a site that desperately is in need of it, 
we're not always guaranteed to actually be able to avail ourselves to the field and to the benefits of it. So no matter what one must say, we have to have a lot of equipment to do this work and a lot of money. And either you're going to get an academic institution, and what makes archaeology elitist is a decision, like, this is important, I will dig it up, this is not important, I will not, or I do not have the resources, or grad students, because, you know, grad students are a great boon to archaeology. Some of the most important sites that get excavated are, you know, have the archaeologists basically as, I mean, the grad student basically as the PI for the dissertation project. And as I always say to people, you know, your luckiest thing you can do is get a PhD student interested in your, in your site, because then they will come in and help you excavate. But barring that, these things are going to completely disappear or be completely destroyed by, you know, whatever subway line is going in next. There is a complicated answer to how I view archaeology as a practice. So I want to separate it out from archaeology as a practice and archaeology as a tool. And I am interested in archaeology as a tool. And I want to just say one more thing about history, Black history in particular, but history in general. I have thought so long and hard about archaeology and its enhancement of history because I realize that once one has a historical understanding of self, that we take up more space in the world. We can think back. We can think forward. We can think expansively about ourselves and the relationships we have from a historical perspective. When you are told that you have no history, it's like you have no foundation, you have no past, you have no beingness. And so there has been a concerted effort, whether it's in the ground, whether it's the built environment, whether it's Black history or Black culture, the burning of Black churches, for example. These are practices, moves designed to keep people small, and disempowered. And to the extent that archaeology brings forward an expansiveness to this historical awareness of self, I think it's a very important uh, undertaking. Thank you, Dr. LaRoche. I'm Eleanor Neal, and this has been Archaeological Identities. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropological Airwaves. Many thanks to Dr. Cheryl LaRoche for her generous reflections on her career and on her work at the African American Burial Ground in New York City. The episode was written, edited, and produced by Eleanor Neal, with additional production support from Anar Parikh, the executive producer of Anthropological Airwaves and associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist. The intro and outro music you hear is titled Waiting, by Croander. The transition track features Spirit Blossom by Roman Bella. Check out the show notes as well as the episode transcript for further reading. As always, a closed caption version of all Anthropological Airwaves episodes, including this one, will be available on our YouTube channel and a full transcription on the episode page of the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to rate and review us while you're there. A five-star review in particular 
can really help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page or on Twitter with the handle at anthroairwaves. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website. Take it easy. We'll be back next month with the next installment of Archaeological Identities.